So we had to tell you how violent it's going to be because inevitably when you pull the trigger, a lot of, a lot of young pilots immediately release the trigger because it scares the crap out of them that something just broke. You just heard from Colonel retired Scott Soup Campbell. Colonel Campbell is a USAFA class of 1995 graduate. Keep the pride. <clears throat> After graduation, he completed pilot training and flew A-10s, which is what he was referring to. He is commanded at the squadron, group, and wing levels. He is a weapons school graduate and was previously the vice commandant of cadets at the United States Air Force Academy before retiring. Colonel Campbell now works at Victory Strategies and is also a squadron professional ethics advisor um, here at the United States Air Force Academy, where he helps in the character and development of cadets. So without further ado, we hope you enjoy our conversation with Colonel Campbell. Oh, cool. Well, so Colonel Campbell, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to, to talk with Jack and I. Um, let's just continue the discussion. Can you tell us about um, your career? Obviously, 95 graduate. What were you up to after that? So uh, I went to the academy because I wanted to be a fighter pilot. That was it. I decided that when I was like in sixth or seventh grade, I allegedly told my guidance counselor I was going to go to the academy, uh, be an aero major, and become a fighter pilot. So two out of three ain't bad. Uh, I was, what was the, um, I guess, what made you want to do that? Was it like, did you see Top Gun? Well, I'm the Top Gun generation, baby. Yep. There we go. Everybody always like, don't say, I'm like, yeah. I'm like, that was a huge, I mean, it wasn't just that. I mean, that like, that came out right about probably, yeah, whatever it was like 86. So it was like right about sixth or seventh grade. But I, I, I was in an airplane since I was young. I would go to our local airport in Albany and they used to have observation decks where you could go up there and watch planes. And, um, and then we had, uh, uh, A-10s used to fly down uh, over our house lot because they would they would train low level up in the mountains. They used to be stationed up in Syracuse, um, so close to where I grew up. And I went to air shows and then Top Gun came out and then uh, I was sold. And then I joined Civil Air Patrol too. So I started flying. Uh, I got my first ride in a Cessna like in sixth grade or seventh grade. And so I definitely had the flying bug um, early on. And so I just kind of set my mind to it and luckily got a pilot slot because we only had 225 of them uh, in our class. So it's pretty competitive, but uh, I at least did well enough to get that. And, uh, and then um, I went to Navy pilot training. We had an exchange program back then. Ours was, our class was the first class to be offered it. And so um, I was just like, all right, why not? And so I went, did uh First half pilot training at Whiting, Pensacola area. And then I went back to Vance for T-38s and then um, got an A-10. That's what I wanted to fly. So I did well enough to get get my choice. And luckily there was one in the drop. And then uh, and then off to A-10 training and, and uh, started flying fighters. And the A-10, that was from you know, growing up when you'd see them flying overhead. Was that where that dream started? Yeah. I mean, I was, I honestly, probably for a while, I like kind of got into the Viper, you know, that was a cool airplane, loud, fast, uh, looks pretty. Um, I always say that to make all the Viper guys mad, pretty little airplane. It's like a Mazda Miata. Um, yeah. they look cool. Just don't let your friends see you driving one. <laughs> but, uh, um, 
But I think what it was, was um, I asked a lot of, so I was lucky my first year, um, our sponsor unit was the last F4 squadron in the active duty air force. And they came up for, you know, football game weekend with jets and I got a backseat ride in the F4 through the Rockies low level. And like, I was already hooked on flying, but then all of a sudden I was like, wow. And like, you know, and being low in the mountains doing, you know, 500 knots, it was crazy. And so, you know, so then I was kind of looking at the air to ground realm. And, and then when I got in T-38s, it really struck me because I get, I went out just me, but our, you got a supersonic ride and it was the biggest, like, buzz, like let down ever. I'm like, you know, we're going downhill afterburner and I'm staring at the, the airspeed indicator. Cause you know, it gets hung up in the transonic region that I at least retained from aero 215, but it gets hung up there. And so the needle's kind of stuck, even though, you know, you're accelerating and all of a sudden just boom, over the hump. And that's when you break the sound barrier and that's it. Like, I'm like, that's it. Like, okay, great. The needle went over Mach 1.0, but like, you don't hear the boom or anything because it's behind you. Right. And so it's like, and, but you're up at 30,000 feet. So you can't, you know, speed's relative and you can't feel it. I mean, you just like, you know, it does not feel fast. And so I was like, well, that sucked. And then I went out on my first low level ride in the T-38 doing 450 knots. That was cool. Even in Oklahoma where there ain't nothing, right? Like it's just flat, but it was right. still cool. Cause you're close to the ground, at, even at 500 feet. I mean, the A-10, it's better cause you're at 100 feet. Um, but so then I was like, okay, I want to be near the ground, clearly. And then I started, I was lucky enough in our flight in T-38s back then, you know, we had, we were shutting fighter squadrons down because it was post um, Desert Storm, budget cuts, all this other stuff. You know, because coming out of Desert Storm, we had 135 fighter squadrons. And these days we have 55 to put it in perspective. And so all those guys were, you know, squadrons were shutting down so they were going back to fly t-38s if they couldn't you know find a new squadron because you're just running out of seats and so we were lucky because the squadron was flush with fighter and bomber pilots and so in my flight i had every weapon system represented so b1s b52s no b2s at that time and then f-16s f-15s a-10s and then even one of the guys flew f-4s and so you could, you could get a feel, like you could ask them, what did you like about your airplane? Because everybody's going to tell you their airplane's the best. And you'd be kind of scratching your head if they didn't. But one of our IPs or instructor pilots was, he flew F4s, A10s, and F16s. And so he, what a perfect op opportunity where I could go, if you could go right back now and fly any one of them, which one? And he didn't hesitate, A10s. And then, so I asked him why I'm like, and so he could actually compare and contrast the A-10 versus the F-16 and why he liked each one for different reasons, but why he liked the A-10 a little bit more. And so after doing that, really what I settled on was the mission. And um, cause it isn't about the airplane. It really isn't. I mean, yes, I love my airplane for so many reasons. And uh I mean, yes, there's nothing better than a 30 millimeter cannon in, in danger close combat. But, um, but the mission of close air support and combat search and rescue in my book are just the most righteous missions out there. Because, you know, every day you're doing the business, you're saving lives. You're taking lives, don't get me wrong, 
but you're saving our guys and gals on the ground or in CSAR, you're going to get one of your brothers or sisters who are, you know, down behind enemy lines to bring them home. And, and like, and it's cool to see like how many assets we will throw at that problem set. So not to break that faith that if I get shot down or I got to bail out, somebody's coming to get me. And it doesn't matter what the threat is or how long it takes or how hard it is, they will not give up until they either get me or they know I'm dead. And so to me, that the, the mission set combined with just a kick-ass airplane uh, was, was just, you know, a no-brainer in my book. Yeah, no, that's incredible. And also let it be known that uh, Colonel Campbell is the only one to ever say that breaking the sound barrier was uh, anticlimactic, <laughs> but um, I tease. Um, so after A-10s, obviously, um, you know, you have a lot of career in between this, but weapons school and then wing commander is Davis Monathan, mm -hmm. right? Is that correct? And then um, from there, the vice commandant. Um, so you know, kind of how did your career take that direction? Um, what was, you know, weapon school like? What were some of the lessons you learned? Maybe lessons you learned as a wing commander? Um, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, Sorry. it's a lot. That's, uh, <laughs> so it's good. Uh, weapon school sucked um, as a student. You know, I went back and taught there. That was a lot more fun to go back and beat students up. But um, being a WUG, which is what we call a student in weapon school, I don't even know if it stands for anything to this day. Um, maybe weapons upgrade, weapons officer upgrade, whatever. But um, well, it's just meant to sound demoralizing. Yeah, it is. It, yeah, yeah, it's like it's like smack. Uh, yeah. you know, it's what we used to call four degrees, right? No. But it um, it sucked. It's just it's hard. Like it's the hardest thing I did in my career. Um, the by far there is. I mean, it's it, you're getting a. PhD in your weapon system, but also in the integration of all the weapon systems we have. And, and so it's just, it's brutal. It's, it's a heavy academic load. You're writing a paper. The sorties are absolutely brutal. I mean, in a good way, because when I went to combat, combat was easy. I mean, I did way harder stuff at weapon school than I did in Afghanistan or Iraq. Um, I mean, we jokingly, you know, for people who get the Star Trek reference and it, you can be an old Trekkie or the new, new age Trekkie, but the Kobayashi Maru, right? So the Kobayashi Maru is a term because it represents the unsolvable scenario. And we had a ride at weapon school that everybody referred to as the Kobayashi Maru. It's like scar tissue, cast four. It's called, it's medium altitude below the weather. It's like, it's the ride no one passes. And so so it was just, you know, it was hard and, but in a good way, it's one of those things where would, I wouldn't want to do it again, but I would never have passed up on it um, because it equipped me uh, for the rest of my career. And, and so, you know, it doesn't just make you just the, you know, lead instructor pilot in the jet when you get back to your, you know, to the squadron. It's more about the, it teaches you to be a better leader. So, you know, the saying at weapon school is humble, approachable, credible. So it teaches you those things on, yes, everybody knows you're a really good pilot because you're wearing that patch on your arm, okay? That everybody knows what that patch means. Um, but it's more about how do you make others better? Like, how do you, how do you become more effective at instructing? How do you take that kid in the squadron who's struggling and 
make them want to fly with you, make them, even though they know you're going to go kick their ass, right? You're going to take them out on the sortie and it's going to be tough. It's going to be brutal. There's a good chance they're not going to pass, um, but they're going to extract so much from the sortie that's going to really improve their game um, as a pilot. And so, um, and so that's, I mean, that to me is foundationally, you know, it, it's, it gave me the opportunity, right? So, um, I, I went through that program and then a year later, my squadron deploys is the first A-10 squadron to go into Afghanistan and the first sortie I'm selected to lead. And that kind of just sets me on my way because literally I joke about it. People will challenge me on the notion. I do believe it though, is that, you know, four days in early March, 2002, that's what set me on my path. You know, it wasn't like anything I intrinsically had. I was a better leader. I was a better pilot. Now there's, there's plenty of guys who are better at both than me. Um, but I got that opportunity because I, I worked hard to get to and through weapons school. And so that that's what earned me an opportunity in combat. And then I did what I was trained to do. And, and that kind of, you know, I was recognized for it. And that, I, that was the momentum, frankly. And so, um, you know, and so I, I continued on from there, went back to teach and then, uh, eventually selected to command a fighter squadron, selected to command an operations group downrange in Afghanistan for a year, and then eventually wing command. So, um, you know, it's all different experiences. You know, I, I don't, a lot of guys will say squadron command's the best because you're still on the tip of the spear. You know, you're still down in the squadron flying every day. There's less BS to deal with. Um, you know, and it gets more and more, the BS goes up the higher up in command and rank and the less tact, cool tactical stuff. Um, but I don't necessarily, I mean, subscribe. I do some, there is a lot of truth in that, but it, it, you know, but it's part of leadership and command is your job is to deal with that stuff. Your job is to deal with things people don't want to deal with. Um, and so, you know, for me, one of the big lessons that I've learned through my career was um, in a lot of times they were hard lessons and I didn't see it at the time, but it was to trust, trust my leadership. And, and it's not to say that you're always going to have good leadership. I did not always have good leadership. I can name names and bad leadership, which I won't. Um, but I, there were things that like my commanders would be like, you need to go do this. I'm like, why do I want to go do this? That, that sounds like it sucks. And, you know, it's that whole, like, it, you know, it, it, it grows character, you know, <laughs> like everything that sucks always grows character, go dig a ditch, it builds character. And, and so a lot of times I would get sent to do these crappy things in my book um, that I didn't want to do that turned out to be hugely developmental. And I look back and say, wow, what an experience. Like, I mean, one of the ones I love to talk about is, at the start of Iraqi freedom, um, we had been rehearsing for about six to eight months um, with special operations guys. And we were developing these tactics, techniques, and procedures, which would eventually become mainstream, what we call CAF soft integration, combat air forces, special operation forces integration. And so it wasn't just AFSOC, you know, who's normally providing the support to the soft guys, it was the Air Combat Command. So, you know, non-soft air power, if you would. 
And so this was kind of a new concept because SOF is really built on habitual training relationships. And because of, we didn't train with them all the time. And so we were developing these tactics and we were practicing for these certain scenarios um, with these, with these tier one forces. And so, um, and so we're going through this. And so I was the wing weapons officer at the time. So I was really the architect to how we were going to do this in the 23rd fighter group, because we lived right next door to JSOC at Fort Bragg, right? Pope Air Force Base, now Pope Army Airfield, appropriately. Um, we were right there. And so that was, it made sense that we were, we, we trained with them a lot because we were in their backyard. And so when the time was ready to go and they said, hey, uh, they came over and was like, hey, the, the command is going to request for forces, one of the two squadrons. And our fighter group commander was sitting in there. I was in the meeting and the two squadron commanders were sitting there and is like, okay, so who's, who wants it? And, um, and that was an odd question to me because it was my squadron's turn because we had gone to Afghanistan, the 74th, and then the 75th came in after us. And so typically the two squadrons rotated um, who was in the hopper to deploy. And so I was just expecting we were gonna go. And then I'm like, well, the question's out there. So my squadron commander is clearly gonna be like, well, we got it. And there was, it felt like a million years, but this pregnant pause, which was probably a 10th of a second. And, um, and all of a sudden the, the other commander sniffed, it was, I like to say, sniffed the fear and hesitancy there and was like, Tiger Sharks got it. And I was like, no, cause that was my wife's squadron. And I had a feeling what was about to happen. So we stepped out in the hallway and I was like, Bino, Colonel Turner, I'm like, you're taking me, right? I'm like, I, I built this. And he's like, I'm the wing weapons officer. He's like, no soup. He's like, you're not in my squadron. Your wife is, and I am not taking you both into combat at the same location. And it was like such a gut punch. And I, I was just crushed. And like, literally it seemed like 10 minutes went by and probably cause I, you know, my conspiracy is that they have, you know, microphones in the walls and the ceiling. JSOC calls and you're like, hey, we heard you're not going. Good news, you can come with us. And I was like, oh God. And so instead of getting to fly in the war, I was deploying on the ground. And <laughs> I was not happy and, uh, and they were, but in the end, I, you know, and I was, I was a pissed off whiny fighter pilot because I'm sitting out here in the tri-border region, you know, 10 miles across the border from Iraq in Saudi Arabia by Jordan, this horrific place called RR. There's nothing out there. And making, you know, PowerPoint slides. <laughs> like, and my wife's flying, dropping bombs and shooting the gun. And we had talked, you know, probably close to every night or next morning. And, but, you know, I eventually kind of under like in the end, I was able to, after it was done and, and I got to go fly um, with an air national guard unit towards the tail end of the war and actually got to shoot some, shoot some stuff and drop some bombs. Um, you know, I got to look back and be like, and cause everybody else thought it was the coolest thing. They're like, dude, you are an air planner for Delta force and seal team six. They're like, like, that's pretty cool. And eventually I kind of was like, yeah, I guess that was like, I get to hang around with the baddest operators in the planet and, uh, and, you know, 
wow, that's pretty awesome. And so in the end, I think, um, you know, that was one of many things where, you know, you got a commander who's like, hey, you know, this this will be really good, really important. This will be an incredible experience. You're just like, no, I just want to fly jets. And turns out, like many moments in my career, uh, that, you know, they were right. <laughs> well, sir, I think that's a pretty good segue. Uh, we were in an honor lesson the other day, and someone mentioned as a junior that they were confused or didn't know the definition of a leader or character. So you talked about how like everything that you've really gone through through your career has been able to build that character, even if it's something you don't really want to do. But what would you define a leader or character as for, you know, what our goal is here at the Academy? Well, I mean, I, I, you know, the, I think that, you know, the easy answer, right? You know, I turn right to the core values, but, you know, that, that's a big part of it, right? It is, you know, and I would, I would always distill it you know, to my young airmen when they would come in for their, when I was a wing commander and they would come in, you know, they would, they would go through this, this process and, and spend, you know, getting to understand the operational air force. And they came out of, uh, out of basic and tech school, like here's your new base. And so I would kind of bring them in as the wing commander with my command chief and kind of say, here's my expectations for you. And I would say like, they, I would rattle off three things and I would say, do the right thing when no one's looking put the needs of the airmen to the left and the right of you ahead of your own and be the best at what the air force is asking you to do. And, you know, and this would be early in the morning, they would be, you know, glossed over kind of like you guys in class, right. It'd be, and, and, you know, I'd be like, so what does that sound like? And, you know, none of them want to talk and, you know, and, but eventually one of them would speak up and would kind of be, would sniff out what I was getting at. And they'd be like, Oh, the core values. I'm like, yeah, I go, I, I like simple words. I'm a knuckle dragon fighter pilot. Um, you know, so, so that's what it means to me. And so I kind of start with that and go, you know, the leader of character is that leader who does those things, right? They're always, they're always, you know, we all fail, we all stumble, right? You know, but we're aspiring to do the right thing always. Um, and that often can be the hard thing. Um, you know, we're trying, we're trying to take care of everybody else, uh, before we take care of ourselves. And, um, you know, and, and so when you look out there at those leaders, that that's what you'll find is the common, you know, and I always go back to the weapon school, right? They're humble, approachable, credible, um, you know, cause the, the credibility, um, is, is kind of, you know, that's a key piece of it, right? Like you can't be a clown you know, expect people to follow you, you know, if whatever your trade is, right? Like, so you've got to be technically competent. You've got to be good. Like in our case, you've got to be good at the airplane. Like, you know, you've got to have their respect that like you're a damn good pilot, but being a damn good pilot doesn't make you a damn good leader. And, and so, you know, so that's why that's a core, a, a heart, a cart in a horse thing, right? Like I got to first become really good. You know, like when I walk into that squadron, you know, it's not different than like the leadership model we use, like lead myself, right? Like I got to be a good wingman. I got to be good in the airplane. I got to spend my time learning everything, be a sponge and show that I can, I can be a good follower, a good wingman, you know? And then when I'm recognized as that, then I'll be selected to be a flight lead and then eventually an instructor. And so I got to work at those things, you know, so I got to be, build my expertise and competence you know, before anybody's going to follow me around, 
right? I mean, and so, but the, the, you're typically, so I kind of look at that as the first step, you know, and then you step into those things of, you know, you know, that's what lifting others is like being a good instructor pilot, you know, they're putting, Hey, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to stay late tonight, you know, to help. We're going to go through your briefing, you know, so you can practice it so you can be ready tomorrow, or I'm not going to do this that I need to do right now so that we can get after this, which is your problem. Um, and so, you know, to me, that's, that's, that's what you see is like, and it's, it's a hard thing to describe, but you know it when you see it and, you know, and when you've got 25 years experience, you know, I knew it when I was looking up and seeing it going, I want to be that guy or that gal. And then you also would look up and see, you know, cause bad leaders, there's plenty of lessons to be taken from them too. Like, I'm not going to be like that someday. Um, and then, then as you continue to grow and you are put in position of leadership, now you're looking in both directions, you know, because I would still, you know, even as a wing commander, um, you know, I, I, and I've been around and worked for my whole life, but General Grace Kelly, Air Combat Command commander right now. So at the time he was the 12th Air Force commander, which was my boss. And then when I was a group commander, he was my wing commander. Um, but, you know, I aspired to be that guy. And, you know, it's, it's like, you know, I could definitely articulate, but it would take me time. Like, what are all the traits about General Kelly that make you want to be General Kelly? And it, it's going to be those things. I eventually get to them, but it's like, you just know. And then looking downhill, you know, I could see my young leaders, even as a captain, you know, or, or for a matter of fact, lieutenant. Like, I, you know, I would put money that she's a 2014 grad. Um, I'll, I'll use her name. She, you know, who knows? Maybe she'll listen to the podcast, but Susan Hurtado. And Susan was a young maintenance officer uh, at DM. And man, I was just blown back. And, and again, it was just like, I could just see it. Like, I, I didn't have to categorize it. I could just watch her out on the flight line and just, I'm like, I already knew like, and it's not like it's all there, right? But it's, I can tell that the raw material is there to be developed. And I could just see and how she carried herself, how she communicated, how she interacted with our airmen. Um, and, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. So I made her my exec. Uh, and, and she had to go sit up in the headquarters outside my door. <laughs> but but it, that was, again, I was paying forward the same things that I hated, right? Like, you know, she had to hear the speech. Trust me, Susan, this will be good for you. She's like, I don't want to be up here answering phones and looking at OPRs. I want to be out on the flight line. And I'm like, you'll get back out there, but you'll be better. And, uh, and so hopefully someday she'll come back and tell me that I was right. But uh, But to me, you know, there's a lot of intangibles to it though. I mean, there's a lot of nuance to, you know, but, but it's in my book though, at the same time, it's not hard. Like, like what are some of those things? Like, like I said, she's out on the flight line. She's not behind a desk. She's not leading via email. She's out there with their airmen talking to them, learning who they are. And she's not out there just because it's, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon, you know, we're in the, you know, she's out there at 2 a.m. because she has swings and mid shifts too. And it's easy, you know, well, I'm, you know, I'm the, the officer in charge. So I got to go to meetings during the day. So I need to work day, day shift. I, I can't, if I go to mid shift, I'll meet the, miss those meetings. And, you know, they saw that and, and I saw that. And, and there are little things like that that really cue you in to having that character and, and, you know, and then 
any problem I gave her, she tackled it. And then back to digging ditches, every crappy thing I threw in front of her, she never complained. You know, hey, guess what? We need somebody to be the combined federal campaign rep. That always goes to some set, poor second lieutenant. And, you know, who's got to go out there and, and, and you know, hand out the slips and, and get teams and reps to get everybody to, you know, either contribute, meet our goals or make contact. And, and, and she did it. She did it well. She didn't complain. Uh, and she had better things she could be doing. Um, but I also, the reason I chose her, because I knew it would get done. And so, so that, there's a lot there, you know, to unpack. But, you know, but that's why I fall back. You know, I mean, you can go to the leader character framework. There's lots of good stuff in it. But for me, you know, it's, it's intrinsically tied, you know, back to the core values. Um, right. and, and so that's, that's why I kind of, they're there for a reason. Mm. Yeah, and in a nutshell too, what you just said, sir, is, um, you know, I'm gonna graduate in what is it, three weeks? Um, which is crazy. Um, and so I feel like so often we're, you know, as seniors um, and even, you know, as juniors or future officers, we're so eager to kind of step out and so eager to want to know, hey, how do I lead or how do I become a good leader? But like you just said, you know, first you just got to absorb and just do and take the opportunities that you're that you're given, um, you know, whether they're the good opportunities or the opportunities that you're not looking forward to um, as much and just own them. Um, so I think that's a great lesson. And um, it's, it's simple stuff. Us. I mean, that you know, we talk about it a lot with, you know, and, and you two have been in the room and we've had these conversations that, you know, just like the honor code doesn't fall over you when you walk up the ramp you're not just going to suddenly step out into the operational air force and be a good leader. Um, but the idea is, is that you practice it's, I mean, it's a lifelong learning journey to be a good leader and you don't top out at any point. Um, but I think a lot of times we have this, this misconception that I don't want to do it at the Academy cause it's hard. And, you know, cause we make you lead your peers. Like, that's no different. Um, you know, those airmen are the same age as you. And oh, by the way, second lieutenant, you're going to have some crusty old chief and he expects you to lead him or her, right? And, and so this notion that I'm never going to have to, you know, hold my peers accountable is, is laughable. Like when I was a group commander, one of my classmates was one of my squadron commanders, okay? Um, you know, we were good buddies at the Academy, uh, but that was a professional relationship. And he, he knew that, you know, there, there were expectations there. It wasn't like he wasn't going to get a pass because he's my classmate. He's not going to get, and, and I'm not going to set lower expectations. And, and, and he knew damn well, I was going to hold him accountable if he didn't meet him. And so, you know, and, and that's, and, and frankly, you know, that's why I always challenge that notion that, well, you know, it's, it's different. I'm like, no, it's not. Like, it's no different than telling somebody that they're not wearing their prox badge than like years later when you're correcting, you know, an, a peer of yours because they're not wearing their reflective belt, okay? Which seems Mickey Mouse, but I use the same examples all the time, okay? You can be a good teammate. It's mutual support. It's not correcting or that mean accountability word. I'm like, you can either help your bro or sis out by just like, hey, maybe it is oversight, but 
you know, you can, you can just help them out. Like, Hey, Hey man, did you forget your prox badge? Or you can not do the right thing. Let them work and walk another 20 yards on the trot. So right into that buzzsaw called an MTI. Okay. You know, thanks dude. Right. And I used to say the same thing to my airmen. I'm like, you can, you can help each other do the right thing, you know, and, and it's about delivery, right? You don't have to, you don't have to be a jackass about it. Right. Just, you know, but you can correct your fellow airman who's not wearing the reflective belt or let them walk out of the air force compound into the command sergeant major who wants to do nothing more than find some airman and chew their ass. Right. So, you know, and it's, so you can't do, if, if you can't do the little things, right. Do you really think I believe you could do the hard things, right? I mean, that's the reality of it. Like, you know, that's how I look at it. And it's, it's, and I, and I look at little examples all the time. Like if you're going to walk down the hallway past the uh, literal, a piece of trash laying, you know, outside of the trash can, you know, and you can't even stop to do that. You are not going to stop and correct much more wicked problems that, that have much more, much more serious consequences. So kind of changing gears here, we talked about like a leader, a character, but you, could you talk about a time that you were in the A-10 and you made a mistake, but nobody would have found out about the mistake and how you handled that? Yeah. Um, so uh, um, I don't, I don't know if it like probably might've found out, I don't know, but um, the, uh, we were out on the range one time. I have a, I have a number of them, but um, you know, a lot of it has to do with being a single seat fighter. And, um, and so um, we were out and I, we were out on the range, like my wingman bingoed out or, or had an issue, had to go home. Um, so I was single, single ship out on the range. And um, uh, we were out and I, I screwed up and I hit um, a closed target. And, um, and I, I think it set it on fire. <laughs> um, it wasn't good. Um, but, um, you know, I was like, crap. And, but, you know, it was closed, you know, mainly because a lot of times they'll like close them because they're, they're doing, you know, like, they're going to like, um, they're trying to take the amount of damage down. Like if, if it's torn up pretty good, they, they may shut it down for a while or whatever. So, you know, the reality was that like, I mean, it caught fire. I was like, Oh crap. Eventually went out and, and I'm like looking down. I'm like, well, I mean, the thing is torn up. Like nobody's going to know any better. Uh, and, and there, it's no harm, no foul. I mean, who cares? Nobody got hurt. Um, but I got back, you know, walked in and I it was at the weapons school and I walked into the DO's office and I'm like, Hey, um, I, I was up, uh, I was up on, you know, range 64 and I shot, I'm like, I just wasn't paying attention or I didn't, I didn't, I, I didn't know for sure that it was closed and I shot a closed target. And this is the target I shot. This is what I shot it with, you know, turned myself in. And it was like, uh, you know, and so he calls the range, lets them know. And they're like, okay, no big deal. Like there, it, yeah, there's nobody out there or anything, but it could add consequences like, you know, and, and like, I knew that, like I got lucky in some respects, you know, but it was no harm, no foul. I mean, like my idea was like, okay, don't do that again, dumbass. And we moved on. Right. Um, but 
you know, I, I, but I've seen like the not coming clean, uh, really have bad consequences. Like, you know, on the, like, even though it was like a little thing, um, ended up, you know, not either, you know, it doesn't have to be necessarily lying. It's just not coming clean, like not being truthful and, you know, okay, hopefully nobody finds out about that. And, uh, and, you know, the consequences are a lot worse versus like owning it right up front. You know, and I, I, I've said that from the beginning of time with pilots, I've said it with cadets, you know, who would, you know, are on their way in to see the comm or the soup. <laughs> Number one piece of advice I go, extreme ownership. That's what it starts with. Just do not do rock in my shoes, sun in my eye. Don't candy coat it. Don't tell me, you know, the standard thing, like with honor hits, right? Like, I just didn't want to fail. Like, I just tried too hard. No, like, just, just own it. Like, I screwed up. Like, when you lead off with that, you start taking the temperature down real quick. And, um, but yeah, I mean, I've had lots of those moments where, you know, and, and the other piece of it is, is that, you can make life a lot harder for other people. Like, you know, one of the things I have a keychain that still has it because it was one of my, it was the first big screw up I had in the airplane. And it's an arming, it's a ring from an arming wire um, off of a 500 pound Mark 82 bomb. And on, uh, on my first ride with live weapons in A-10 training, um, I go out, um, I go on a pass, you know, all excited, but I'm, I'm steep. And so I have to come off because we have parameters we got to hit. And I'm more than five degrees steep, so I can't break the training rule. So I come off target dry, meaning I didn't release. But at the time, I didn't have a good technique, and it came through uh, holding the stick. I now, for the rest of my career, I held it like this because it keeps your finger away from the trigger and the weapons release button so that there's no ever oops. And I had an oops because I was just holding the stick and like ham fisting it. And my finger was right there above the pickle button and on the pull off, you know, you're doing four or five G's, my thumb comes down and greases just lightly hits the pickle button and I feel ka-clunk. Uh-oh. Oh yeah, and I am like 30 degrees nose high, which is completely illegal to even release a weapon because it's, it's not designed to come off under that G-force. You can have collision with the airplane. All kinds of bad stuff can happen. And because I'm nose high, the, it just lofts this bomb like 10 kilometers or something ridiculous. And I immediately go, knock it off, knock it off. And, and because that, at that distance, nobody may have even, the, my instructor may not have seen it. Like I could have maybe just played it off and, you know, or I could have said, what's that explosion in the distance? Yeah. Well, and, and I, and I, so before it even hit, I was like, I just pickled the bomb in safe escape and everybody's like, Oh, and, and so everybody starts looking in the direction and hoping to God it lands on the range because the range is in out in the Barry Goldwater complex right outside the range complex is it's all reservation land. I mean, and, and, and so you know, bad, badness could happen here. I mean, people get killed. It's a live weapon. And, and, uh, but, you know, and immediately, you know, we knock it off, we see it, we mark the position it's on range. Thank God on the impact area. And then like my instructor's like, dude, 
what just happened? Like, like in, you know, so the, he asked me the, the key question he goes, was, was it a uh, unintentional release or um, what was the other word? Inadvertent release. The definition is, so we use the letters to remember which one means which. Unintentional or unintentional means starts with the letter U, you did it. Inadvertent starts with the letter I, it did it. Meaning the jet, the bomb just came off, right? You know, the, the you know, years later was vindicated, uh, Gus Grissom, the hatch just blew. NASA finally came out and said, yep, it actually, the hatch just blew. He didn't do anything wrong. But in this case, you know, I, I could, that, that's a moment where you can be like, I can just say the jet did it because I'm going to get hammered. Like I'm, I'm hooking this ride, pressure to perform, all these things, all these bad things are about to happen if I tell the truth. Sorry, you know? And it'd be easy just to be like, it was in, inadvertent. I don't know what happened. The, like, I, I don't, you know, or I could just play like, I don't think I did it. Uh, you know, and you could, you could have that moment. And then, oh, by the way, now the jet's going to get impounded. The maintenance guys are going to have to tear into the airplane because you're saying the jet did something really bad on its own. Uh, but luckily I just, it was like, nope, it was unintentional. That was me. I, I accidentally hit the pickle button during safe escape. And so my instructor's like, okay, knock it off. All right, let's get the weapon, rest of the weapons off the jet. And I'm like, I feel horrible. And I'm like, I know this sucks. And I, and sure enough, I get back in the squadron. I'm standing at attention in the DO's office, getting my ass chewed. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to finish this program. Am I going to get washed out? I got a, you know, I just tacoed. I got a, a zero dangerous on my grade sheet. Um, but it was okay. And like, there could have been a lot worse things because I've seen guys do the, take the other route. And, you know, the truth eventually is going to come out. I mean, like rare is it like, you know, you guys know to put in the context of honor, right? Rare is it, do you have a true self-report? Because, you know, it's, typically there's something there that eventually is going to show up. Um, you know, because I watched a guy in one of my, my second squadron, third squadron, um, uh, his, his call sign was flap wheel. And it was, I forget the acronym. There were some expletives in there and whatnot, but, uh, he, but he, he hit, what he did was he hit the pickle button. So the guys were out holding is out on the coast of North Carolina. They're in the hold wait like 10 miles from the impact area. Cause we would do these run it long run-ins at low altitude. And so they're in the hold out over the river, which is our, was our normal holding spot. And he's on his check ride, his mission, combat mission ready check ride with the, with the, I think the DO or the commander. And in the hold, he accidentally hits the pickle button instead of like the radio button or the autopilot. And he, and look, it was a 25 pound practice bomb, but he drops this thing into the river. And yeah, it doesn't say oh, anything, no. doesn't say a word about it. And so goes the whole sortie. Like that's a big deal. He's off range. Like this is in, like just out in somebody's neighborhood, right? And yeah. he go, he decides he's not gonna say anything about it. Comes back, you know, they go in the debrief, and the, you know, the, the evaluator's like, okay, you know, because uh, he's like, I can't. This is a check ride. I can't. I'll hook the check ride. He's like, you know, that's what he's thinking is consequence. And he's like, eh, what's the chances he's gonna know? And right. and so he comes back and. Any alibis? He's got he's got multiple uh, opportunities to come clean, 
Man, nope, nope. Uh, any training rule busts? Nope, nope, nope. All good, all good. And then like, and then the instructor's like, okay, let's uh, let's cue up this pass. And he's and so he's. This is an old school three quarter inch tape. So it's like you you turn fast forward. And it's like you know, like you know, on an old VCR, if you would. And he's fast forwarding, and then in the in the tape, the video and the audio is going real fast. You know, he's got max fast forward, and he's trying to get past that point. Because in the jet, there's a what's called a weapons release cue. So a little square shows up in the corner of the screen whenever a tr the trigger's pulled or the, the pickle button's depressed. And it's really, it's pretty quick. Uh, so anyway, he's trying to get past that. So it's like, like real quick, but the evaluator hears it. He's like, whoa, whoa, what was that? He's like, uh, nothing, nothing, you know, nothing to see here. And he's like, uh, and he's trying to like, just these are not the droids you're looking for, Jedi mind trick the evaluator and it ain't gonna happen. And he's like, and he's like, sit down. And he backs the tape up. Oh man, there it is. I couldn't he's ball. like, dude. And oh wow, ugliness ensued. That was not good. And so because now that we gotta, you know, we haven't told anybody. There's all kinds of FAA stuff we gotta file. You know, EOD has got to go out and you know, potentially in scuba gear and go find this thing in the river. Like, I mean. Yeah, all kinds of badness. This dude was in the doghouse. He got, he busted the check ride, needless to say. He got grounded. I think he went to a flight evaluation board. He got retained, but like his life was hell for months. And again, it would have been, it would have been, yep, he would have hooked the check ride no matter what. But it would have been a lot less of an issue. And honestly, that like, in my opinion, that became a big deal, like in his career, like that was like, everybody knew about it. And so now it wasn't about you're a dumbass. Like it really became, this dude has questionable integrity. Like, and that became a big deal. And, and it, it pretty much derailed him in his first assignment. Like he, I know for a fact, never recovered. Like, and he showed up in another squadron, same reputation. Everybody knew about it. And, and that just stained everything. And, you know, and, and so for, you know, I don't know that he ever got it back. Um, you know, and so that's, that's kind of the, the way, you know, I always look at it is it, it caught the cost is, is, you know, and, and I know we talk about honor as a hammer, but I, you know, I say like, you know, six months of probation, you don't get those opportunities in, in the operational air force. Like, and it's not just about your peers, it's about your airmen. Like, you know, talk about you're, you're going to try to lead airmen and you, and they all know that they all know that reputation. It's not to say guys don't get a second chance, but you know, it's the same thing. It's not about the mistake. It's not about the act. It's about how you handle it. And that's, and that's usually, you know, I mean, I've made plenty of mistakes in an airplane, but, but I've always owned them. Um, you know, and, and again, it comes back to the, it doesn't get better with time. I mean, some of the ones you're, you know, you're not going to hide. You're like one of the guys at Pope came home one day with a uh, high tension cable off of a radio tower wrapped around the wing. Yep. Uh, that's not going to be right. That wouldn't qualify as a self-report. Okay. Yeah. You're going to have to come clean, but uh, yeah, that's, that's one that probably we would have known about. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, there's plenty of guys who, you know, who have had those moments and, and, you know, and luckily there's guys who can, who share that and go, it would have been way worse, you know, and, and the same thing goes that like, and even if you didn't get caught, um, I know guys who've, who had those moments and, and they, even though there were no, there were no negative consequences to the act, it gnaws on them. It really does that, that, I mean, and to the tune that like, I'll, I'll share a more close example to you guys. When I was the vice, I remember our chief, our, our honor, chief of the honor division came down to me. He's like, never going to believe this. He's like, I just took a phone call from a grad uh, who called to turn himself in from 10 years ago. Wow. Yeah, no kidding. And I mean, obviously there's no consequences to it, but it was, you know, the, the grad in this case was just like, it is just not at me for a decade. Like it just bothered me so much. And I felt like this was the only way I could square it though. It's never going to really be square. Um, but I'll feel better about it by at least calling you. I don't know you, you know, but I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to follow what I knew the system to be. And I'm, I'm going to turn myself in. And clearly it would have been a self-report, right? Cause 10 years have gone by and he didn't get caught, but you know, so that's, you know, that's the thing. I mean, but there are, I mean, but the, the consequences are real. I mean, for sure. Right. And if we, you know, kind of want to just compare those two stories that you talked about, um, you know, in your case, when you accidentally, you know, released a live, you know, bomb um, at this point, uh, you know, and I don't want to speak for you, sir, but like you can pretty much just kind of laugh that one off because, I mean, you owned that mistake, um, came forward about it right away um, and were prepared to, to suffer the consequences where, um, you know, the other, the other gentleman that you talked about, um, the story kind of went the opposite in that that tainted his reputation worse for you. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure maybe it strengthened, you know, your already um, good relationship among, among the, the, the unit. It's, I mean, I think it's just, yeah, I think it's that, um, and it's, it's a very valued, I mean, okay. It's, it's valued in every, you know, AFSC career walk of life, arguably, right. Maybe not, but I think it's valued greater in, in the fighter community, in particular, when you're a single seat fighter, okay? Especially back then. Now there's more bells and whistles and, and we record more stuff for debrief purposes, but a lot of stuff, like nobody's in the jet. Nobody knows what I'm doing. Like, so like there's so many elements of, um, of, like what could be construed as the little white lie that could cost lives. Like simple thing, like, and it's happened before. Um, you have an obligation as a wingman to call blind when you lose sight of your flight lead, because your responsibility is to deconflict from their aircraft. What that tells my flight lead is I've lost sight. So he needs to find me. So we don't run into each other. And, and then he takes responsibility until I'm visual again, and then it's back on me, right? Not a big deal, but you know, I, maybe I'm in an upgrade. Um, I've had this problem, it's been documented. And, and so uh, I'm just gonna give it a couple seconds. Like I go blind, 
I'm going to give it a couple seconds. And then whammo, we crash into each other. Okay. That's a, that's a big deal. <laughs> needless to say for a very small thing. And, um, you know, and so it's, it's that foundation that we like to talk about the simple things, right. And, and our prior ACC commander, General Holmes used to say all the time to us as wing commanders, you know, when we'd be talking about flight discipline, when we would start having issues with crashes and whatnot. And he says, look, he goes, as soon as you do something three to five times with no negative consequence, you have, you have changed your standard. Okay. And so that's this idea. And, and so I, I think it's very important because in what we rely on is everything is built on that trust and, and then it's owning everything, even the little things, because I can come in and be like, Hey, you know, we're, we're debriefing the sortie, you know, um, you know, how did, how did your timing get so, so screwed up or whatever? And, and I can just be like, well, he's not going to know that I was blind. Like, there's no way to know that. Like, and, and so I was blind. So I was getting out of formation. I got spread out and that's, and then I had to check back in and I got late for the attack. I just be like, well, you know, you know, rocking my shoes, son of my eye, or I just be like, I went blind. I didn't call it. Okay. That's a big hit on me. Um, that's a training rule bust. And, and so I got to own that. And, and so it's those little things because that's how we get better is we, because otherwise I may be going down a rabbit hole and debriefing something when actually the root cause was you went blind and you're not admitting it. And we're going to spend all this time going, Oh, the geometry was screwed up or we weren't using the train, right. X, Y, and Z. And then now the unit is going to suffer because of my, you know, inability to own a mistake. And, and so I think that's a big thing to, that our debriefs are built on that, that everybody comes in and right at the start, we usually lead off with any alibis and everybody's like, I screwed this up. I broke the training rule. I went mid airspeed. Uh, I was steep on this pass. Everybody owns it. It's awesome. It's such a great environment because then you, you have such a high level of trust that I don't have to look over my shoulder to know your information because I know you'll tell me if you're out. You tell, you'll, you'll call blind, you'll call stripped, you'll call these things. And I trust that you're clearing my six, which is your responsibility. Because if you ain't and I get shot down, it's a bit of a consequence <laughs> and I'm going to be pissed. Right, right. Well, thank you, sir, for the, the stories and the expertise you've shared with us so far. I got one last part that I, that I want to go over with you. And that's about the A-10 itself. So I have four questions and then one last question, but the four questions are like quick, rapid fire, five second, first thing that comes to mind. Okay. So what's the best part about the A-10? The gun. Worst part? Slow. Number one misconception? It's slow. <laughs> no, uh, it's, um, it's not maneuverable. That's because a misconception? Well, I, I think I think some people construe that because it can't fly at 500 knots, it can't like square a corner. It's actually more maneuverable because it's slow and it's got a big right. Wing. But yeah. there are some people who think, well, it's slow. But I'm like, yeah, and I have a turn circle that's about this big compared to a Viper doing 500 knots that has a two mile turn circle. And then the best base for the A10. <sighs> Mission Nellis. Um, 
completely unbiased weapon school yeah well yeah Uh, just that that's a joke my favorite base though believe it or not was pope really which shocks everybody but it's it's because north carolina it was cool because of location north carolina you're an hour from the mountains you're an hour from the ocean um low cost of living and then because i don't know the squadron the squadron we all lived in the same place just because of the nature of fayetteville Nobody lived in Fayetteville. That's where all the army guys lived. We all lived out in Southern Pines. And so, um, but yeah, we don't have all the good locations. That's what the Raptor guys have. They have like cool places like Langley or Tyndall, like Elmendorf. They get all the good bases. There was a time when there were A-10s in Myrtle Beach, which that I have heard from the old heads in my squadron when I was a young pup. That was the place. And then to close us out, sir, what's your favorite story in the A-10? What's the best part, best time you've ever had in it? Uh, I mean, the best time for sure, you know, has to be in combat. Um, you know, I, I, I think like Anaconda was, was just awesome to be able to show up and do what we do best, which is, you know, take over a battle, you know, in this case is a Ford air controller, um, and run the war, like with huge consequences in a, in, in a positive way where we were able to save a lot of lives in a situation that was really going south fast. Um, you know, but I, I think that in my mind, and like, I mean, so that, those were like, that was like the essence, like that, that, you know, I, I referred to it earlier, those four days, but really, um, that week, you know, we, we got launched into the abyss, you know, next to no information. We showed up, we sorted it out. We took over the entire fight. We had no idea where we were going to land. You know, we went and landed and, you know, it's no longer classified. We couldn't talk about it for years, but in this highly, you know, at the time classified location in Pakistan, like we didn't talk about Pakistan, but we were flying out of Pakistan for a week. Um, you know, and like, it, it just was like, you know, it was at the end of the sortie, it was, a you know, ended up being an almost 12 hour sortie, like on the last trip to the tanker, we have no idea where we're going to recover. And they're like, Hey, you're going to, to Jacoba bad. And Oh my God, where's that? We're, crap. We're going to Pakistan. You show up, nobody's there. You're in the middle of nowhere, you know, and eventually our squadron you know, C-130 showed up a few hours later, but you know, but it was like the, the coolest essence of being a fighter guy, like all the things you dream of. Cause like, like we get there and call back to Kuwait and they're like, Hey, the cavalry's on the way. We launched those two jets into the fight. So you guys are going right back in your pilot rest is waived, you know, cause normally we need 12 hours, you know, from the time I climb out of the jet to climb back in like pilot rest is waived. Go get a few hours of sleep. I need you airborne in in the morning it was by this point it's like four in the morning and like we literally turned around in six hours launched right back into the fight you know got to catch two to three hundred bad guys out in the open which was bad news for them we cleaned off uh we dropped 10 500 pounders on them and then put 750 rounds of 30 millimeter into them um i mean so huge impact on the battlefield and then like literally the next, you know, came home, 
same thing. We're trying to, or came home back. We went back to Pakistan and then like the next morning, cause it was the same thing the night before, the night before we launched, it was like, I pulled in and they're like, Hey, you're launching in 12 hours. You're going to Afghanistan. We, we were doing the Southern watch thing. I had, I had no idea what the ROE was, never seen any of it. I mean, it's just like launch tanker's going to meet you out here over the Straits of Hormuz off the coast of Iran. And it's going to drag you up there and you're just going to have to read through the smart pack and figure it out in a way. And then like, you know, so that, and then three days later, you know, on the third day, I'm supposed to get a day off. You know, we've now got two more jets in country and I'm literally staying in the shower and the top three comes running in. It's like, get your crap get in the MPC, you've got to launch immediately because we weren't supposed to launch during the day because the Pakistanis were really sensitive. Everybody knows what country in A-10 comes from. So, you know, they had to manage the, you know, they were managing the war in Afghanistan and they did not want to divulge that Americans were on the soil in Pakistan. It's kind of hard to hide an A-10, but they're like, you can only fly at night because we can't have people seeing because it's in the middle of this huge city. And, uh, and so like, Again, it was like we launched the day before, but they're like, okay, no more of that. No more daytime stuff. And so next day I like get pulled out of the shower. They're like, get, you know, I come running in, they hand me a piece of paper with a big circle on it, and they go, We think we got bin Laden. Launch now. And like that was it. It was like I'm like oh, punching God. the coordinates in. Obviously, it wasn't. And uh, right. but but yeah, so we get out there and like literally I get overhead and there's a a, a white SUV off the side of the road, there's a giant crater in the road from a 2000 pound bomb they put in front of it and, and made it crash. And then we had two uh, MH-47s on the deck. And I actually found out literally maybe six months ago, um, one of my teammates at Victory Strategies put me in touch with a buddy, of his, one of my SEAL teammates, put me in touch with a buddy of his, uh, who's a SEAL Team 6 guy. and because he had put together that we were there together. And, and I found out and got the whole story back on what had happened, but that's the thing is we were overhead. And cause I remember seeing, you know, dudes in zip ties with bags over their heads. Um, cause I asked him, I'm like, I know now, I mean, I obviously knew immediately thereafter that it wasn't him. We would have been celebrating it. I'm like, who did we get? And I eventually found out, you know, it was a very high Lieutenant, um, you know, of his, but you know, I ended up providing cover for the rest of the day, but it was just like, like those days were crazy. I mean, it was just like, um, so, I mean, that, that's the month of my career that's just like burned into my memory just because it was like, and, you know, and it, I always share that it like, it's really cool because I saw the trust my leaders had in me because I was a young captain, you know, and, and my squadron commander could have been leading this, the group commander, you know, any number. And he said, no, you know, I was only about a year out of weapon school. He's like, you know, you're the chief of weapons and tactics. It's your job to lead these types of sorties. And, and thankfully, all that training paid off because, like I said, it was, it was, you know, it was complex, but it was, it, I, I, mean, I look back and go, I had a lot harder sorties in weapons school than I what I was doing there. So. Well, I, I'm, I'm kind of speechless, so I don't really know where to begin, but I think that that's, um, yeah, I think that's a that's a perfect place to end this. I don't think anything could top that. Um, what an incredible story, and obviously, what an incredible um, experience and career that you've had. So, thank you for sharing that with us, uh, Jack. And I both really no, appreciate, appreciate it. it. I, I, I love to share when you know, as you you two know, and then you know, 
uh, you know, it's all about giving you guys hope that there's light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> you know, Nino, you're close. So you can actually see the, you can see the edges of the tunnel now, but you know, oh, yeah. Jack's, Jack's still got some time, but, uh, um, but yeah, it's just a, that that's, you know, sometimes it's hard to remember why you came to this institution, you know, and there's, there's those days that you're like, what the hell was I thinking? Especially if you get off the phone with your buddy at UCLA or whatever, it was telling you about the, how they blew it out this weekend. And, you know, uh, you know, but that's why, right? Like, cause that, you know, that's, that's what I always try to, you know, remind you all that there's, a, there is, there's, there's stuff that you two are going to get to go do that is going to water my eyes. Like I'm envious. I know that it's like, you know, I'm an old retired guy now. So like, I'm envious of what's in front of you. Like that runway is all behind me. Right. And, and, and in my job now, I ain't ever going to get to do cool things like that. And you guys are. And so, I mean, I'm envious of the position you're in. And so, you know, that, that's, I always take that as my job is to try to give you that boost of motivation, not just to get through that place, but also not to exhale when you do, you know, I do have the picture of the chapel in the hill in my rear view mirror, my Jeep, as I'm driving away, saying four letter words about the place. And, you know, like everybody, I ain't ever coming back here. How ironic. I've been back so many times before this time, you know, to come to come talk and do that kind of stuff. But um, but don't exhale because, you know, there's more in front of you and you want to keep the momentum and you want to. You, you know, if you work, continue to work hard, you're going to get those opportunities. And, you know, because the academy is going to get the academy by itself is going to give you those opportunities ahead of a lot of your peers in our in our Air Force. But, you know, just remembering that, you know, I've had friends who kind of, you know, got done like, oh, sweet uh, freedom. Nobody telling me what to do, generally speaking, and completely relaxing and taking too much advantage of all that freedom and then ended up not in a place they wanted to be, you know, as far as not getting through pilot training or washing out of a program or, you know, that kind of thing. And so that's kind of my other message is just, you know, don't take your foot off the gas and, and, you know, and enjoy it. I mean, I know it's easy, it's easy to say, I always say, so, you know, I always say, you know, I've got a two degree that I sponsor and then a couple four degrees, but I'm always like, you know, two degree first a year is actually the time. I know the dean's still kicking your butt, but that's the time to start enjoying that place. I mean, you know, you're you're about to have it in the rearview mirror too. But you know, for Jack and everybody else, like you, know, especially first a year. I mean, I'm glad that I finally did start enjoying life a little bit more as a first year and, and really recognizing, you know, the experience, but uh, and the people you're with. Um, you know, because they, they won't ever go away. I mean, I was on the phone with one of my classmates who I was a four degree with just yesterday, um, who is a B-52 guy, but he was just like asking me some questions about what was going on here. And, and like, that is all the time. So, you know, enjoy it. it. I know it's easy for me to say, but you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of awesome stuff you too, and everybody else are going to get to do. I'm very envious of you. Thank you, sir. I, and I, I can speak for both of us when I say that we're both very excited um, you know, especially with what's, what's coming up, but I'll never be, you know, in an A-10 going after uh, Bin Laden. But, Maybe not Bin Laden, uh, but the I'm, rest I'm of this stuff could happen. That's right. I'll tell, I'll tell you just real <laughs> quick. I mean, you know, I, uh, I'll just share that uh, um, 
I have a video on my phone of one of my casual lieutenants who worked for me up in CW. You know, it's he used to talk to me about flying A-10s, what you want to do. And so uh, this week he's going out to shoot the gun for the first time. And so Oh, what was that feeling like? Oh God, it's the cool. I mean, it's we actually have to tell you as a as a we call it B courser. So that's the initial qualification training is the B course, the basic course. So we, we extensively brief you because, you know, every ride in the A-10s, you're by yourself to include the first ride because we have no two-seaters. And so we had to tell you how violent it's going to be because inevitably when you pull the trigger, a lot of, a lot of young pilots immediately release the trigger because it scares the crap out of them that something just broke in the airplane because you're sitting on top of the gun you're sitting right on top of the of the the breach and um and so it is i mean it's 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 incredibly violent and and so it shakes the whole airplane so if you ever see videos from the cockpit it's the reason that the you know everything's shaking all the smoke is coming over the canopy um it actually the g meter will peg out so the G meter will peg max and negative and positive G's. It's completely unreliable because every time you shoot the gun, the G meter maxes out on both ends and you have to reset it. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's really scary at first, but then all of a sudden you're like, I mean, we, that's why we try to prepare you for it because even after you shoot it, the, the airplane, the gun rotates on its own on certain intervals and it's even that it like, clunk, clunk. I mean, it feels like you're running into something. And so that scares guys. Like, like if you don't brief it right, they're like, uh, so uh, to something, I think something just happened. And it's like, no, dude, the gun's rotating. It's that's cooling itself. And, uh, but you smell the, even with an oxygen mask on, cause it's mixing the air, you smell the cordite. And so when you shoot the gun, you smell it. Like it is, you know, it's like that, you know, the classic Robert Duvall in Apocalypse Now smells like victory when he talks about napalm in the morning. Like, that's the same thing to me. Like, we used to joke about it all the time. Like, that smell, like, it, there's nothing on the planet like it. And, like, it just, like, triggers all these chemicals in my brain when I smell it. It's, like, the greatest smell on the planet. It's, uh, yeah, it's so like you get me all, high. Yeah, you get me all fired up about it. It's, uh, <laughs> it is, it is, it's awesome. I mean, that's, like, that's, that's one of those moments in the airplane you don't ever forget. Like you honestly kind of forget your first sortie before you forget that. So, but it's going to be around 15 more years. So at least. Well, cool. Well, I, I, um, I look forward to, to um, my A10 smell, if you will, my, my equivalent. Well, cool. Well, Colonel Campbell, once again, thank you so much, sir. Um, we don't want to take any more time. No worries. Day, no worries. So okay. Thank you so much. I, I enjoy the talk and uh, the discussion with you guys. So uh, thanks for your time, because your time is more valuable than mine these days. True. <laughs> well, thank you, sir. Yeah. Have, a, have a great rest of your day. All right, day. you guys take care. Thanks, sir. Thank you. Cheers. Bye.